Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I feel very protective of the mothers who do make those choices and very, very sort of defensive on behalf of every single stay-at-home mum who's ever had somebody instantly lose interest in them at a party when she says what she, what she does all day. You know, this happens a lot. Every stay-at-home mum knows what it feels like when somebody says, so what do you do? And you say, oh, I'm a mum. And you can already see them looking over your shoulder. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Today, I am starting the podcast with two slightly different announcements. The first is that Persuasion has partnered with the Civil Discourse Initiative at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, to bring a set of interesting speakers to MIT, some of whom we will feature in conversation on the good fight. The first of those is Mary Harrington, an interesting feminist philosopher with whom I debated in an interesting, if sometimes somewhat contentious way, about how much progress we have really made towards equality between men and women on today's podcast episode. You will be hearing more about this conversation and the initiative at MIT from Alex Byrne and Brett Scow, who lead it. The other initiative is that we have a fun event planned for any of our listeners who happen to be in the United Kingdom. On January 22nd, we would love for you to join Persuasion and the Equiano Project for a conversation on the usefulness and the limits of the American cultural frame in places like the UK. It'll feature great panelists, including Tomiwa Owolade, James Bloodworth, Sonia Soda, and it'll be moderated by Inaya Follarin Imam at the Sackford in London. I hope you enjoy this week's conversation. My name is Alex Byrne. I'm a professor in MIT's Department of Linguistics and Philosophy. And my name's Brad Scow, also a professor in the same department. And the two of us have started a two-year project at MIT called Civil Discourse in the Classroom and Beyond. Since Yasha's interview on this episode follows up on one of our events, we wanted to say a bit about the project by way of introduction. Universities have a dual mission, the discovery of truths and the instruction of students. A core means to the first of these is academic freedom. Faculty should be allowed to pursue and debate ideas as they see fit. But the second part of the mission is no less important. Students should be able to have productive, good-faith conversations with others with whom they disagree. And this has a civic as well as an intellectual justification. Exchanging ideas with opponents is part of being a good citizen in a democracy. The goal of our project is to help MIT students gain this essential skill. The project is generously funded by the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations and has two core components, a speaker series open to the MIT community and seminars in Concourse. Concourse is a learning community inside MIT for first-year students 
and two faculty from Concourse are on our team. And in their seminars, the Concourse students discuss freedom of expression and develop skills for successfully engaging in civil discourse. Our goals align closely with persuasions, so a partnership between the two was a natural choice. British writer and reactionary feminist Mary Harrington visited us at MIT to discuss the question, has feminism made progress with Anne McCants, a history professor here at MIT and one of our team members. The room was packed and Mary and Anne modeled how to discuss controversial issues in a civil manner. We hope the students got as much out of it as we did. And now, more Mary talking with Yasha Monk on The Good Fight. Mary Harrington, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you're known in an interesting sense as a critic of some of the forms of feminism that have been dominant in the last decades. I take it that those traditional metrics you're talking about are questions like, do women have the vote? Are they participating in the workplace? How much income are they able to generate? Why is it that those are the wrong questions? Not the wrong questions, but insufficient questions to ask. So the logic of second wave feminism emanates from, as I explained a little while ago, a specific tech transition, which was into the, what I call the cyborg era, which is to say that the contraceptive era. And I think that's, we can argue the toss about that, and I'm sure we will at some point. But I think this is wildly underpriced as a, as a transformative shift in the, the entirety of culture, because it, it just completely rewrote, it rewrote interpersonal relations at an absolutely fundamental level on so many different axes and had a huge number of downstream consequences, you know, commercially, legally, um, politically, economically. I mean, it's, it's, it's integral to women's access to the workplace on more or less the same terms as men. There's a huge raft of social changes and equality legislation and cultural transformations, which are downstream of all of that. Most most of that is good. Now, to be to be crystal clear, when I say I don't believe in progress, I don't I, I don't take from that that things are necessarily getting worse. Now, all my argument ever really is is that when you for, for for any given gain that you make, there are probably some trade-offs somewhere, and that sometimes those trade-offs land asymmetrically, and often they're obscured by a simplistic narrative of directional moral improvement. So, when I talk about the contraceptive era, to be clear, there are a great many benefits of those, and you know I am a beneficiary of a great many of those improvements. I'm a great graduate woman, there are opportunities which are open to me downstream of all of those social transformations which wouldn't have been if I'd been born in 1920, or would have been at, you know, considerably greater personal risk and cost, and it would have been considerably more challenging to do actually most of the things I've done with my life since I since I left school. So I'm not saying that all of these things are bad, but the logic of the contraceptive era has also been to, to present women with an understanding of of ourselves and our embodiment and of what it means to pursue the good, which is constitutively at odds with our biology, which is to say we're offered a version of emancipation, which means we, we end up waging war on our own bodies you know, as a precondition for being able to pursue that form of emancipation. And the logic of that has been broadly beneficial for several generations of women, but it's now, you know, following through its own logic, arrived at a point where it's reversing into net negative gains, in my view, for at least some women which is to say we, we find ourselves waging war in a sort of culture of, culture of broad-based body dissociation. I'd love to hear more about that. So again, I think it's obvious some of the freedoms that the pill and the broader sexual revolution and social changes that that brought about has given women. Tell me a little bit more about 
the ways in which it's negatively impacted women in your estimation. Returning again to the logic of trade-offs, one of my heuristics for thinking about technology more generally, not just the contraceptive pill, but technologies more generally, what it tends to do is free us from some limit that previously seemed a given. I mean, we could take transport, actually, which you were talking about earlier. I mean, motorised transport freed us from what had previously seemed the limits on how fast you could travel. I mean, I just flew 5,000 miles around the world to come and speak at MIT, and thank you very much for having me. And this is not something which would have been possible 200 years ago. You know, on its own terms, that's progress. And one of the trade-offs that tends to come with escaping previous previous limitations, Ivan Illich is very strong on this, I don't know if you've read his critique of the car, is that escaping a previously given limit will end up making us dependent in other ways. This is Ivan Illich's theory of counterproductivity. In a sense, we become dependent on the technologies which we imagine have freed us. So now, like, there are a great many people who might be freed to travel, but there are now people who don't have the opportunity not to travel. Or there are people who who can't afford not to have a car and therefore spend, as this is Ivan Illich's argument, spend half of their working week earning the money to pay for the car that they need to get to work or to maintain the car. So the whole thing becomes a kind of cycle of a different kind of dependency. And what tends to happen is that you liberate yourself from what was previously a set of a set of embodied or physical or givens governed by social codes. And what happens is that the market moves into that space. So this is my heuristic for, for thinking about technology more generally. And one of the ways I've set out to understand what happened with the contraceptive revolution is to think of it as the, the point where we turned our liberating technologies in upon ourselves, particularly women. And what that's tended to do is to deliver a huge dividend of freedom. I mean, my freedom to fly 5,000 miles around the world and come and do amazing, exciting speaking opportunities at MIT. But what also happens is that the market moves into our bodies with it. So as well as, for example, opening up sexual freedom, immediately downstream the contraceptive pill, you get the, you get a libertarian defense of the porn industry and you get a mushrooming of the sex industry and you get your whole new, whole new types of commodification of female sexuality, which existed previously, but which were now impossible to, to sanction at a social level simply because the material reason for forbidding them was just no longer no longer so pressing because the concrete risk of pregnancy was so greatly reduced. So it's, it's very much harder to argue in that situation that women shouldn't sell sexual access to themselves because, I mean, at the end of the day, who does it concern except you? I own my own body. And if body autonomy is liberating for most women, then surely also by extension it's liberating to those women who want to sell sexual access. And my argument, my critique of this is not to say women shouldn't be allowed, this is not even beneficial to some women who want to sell sexual access. It's to say whether or not that's beneficial depends on how much social status you have. If you look at the sort of happy prostitute archetype, which comes up a lot in advocacy for the sex industry, what you tend to see is that these are middle-class women who've chosen this lifestyle. And what you very, very much less frequently see is the trafficked women who were impoverished, who came from the global south, who were children when they were trafficked, who were drug addicts or who, who, who needed to make rent or whatever, and who are also liberated into being able to sell sex, but were not in fact in a position to choose to do so and were instead coerced into it. So what I'm saying is the liberation that comes with technologizing our own bodies also comes with a dividend of commodification and the benefits of that accrue asymmetrically depending on how much social status you have in the wider context. My critique, it's a fairly straightforward piece of class analysis that says this is emancipatory except for the people who are, who are just having an absolutely terrible time under this metric, under this order. And once you extend that into your into into the human body, it begins it begins with contraception and the boom in the sex industry, but but subsequent to that, you get the industrialization of, of fertility, um, which is also downstream of the same the same logic of of control 
and commodification of women's fertility. And now it's possible to, to sell your eggs and to, to, to pay your college tuition. And, and sure, this, there are some women who've, who've graduated from university debt free as a consequence of doing that. There are other women who've been, who've been more or less bullied into doing it or who've been, who've done it out of economic desperation and then found themselves significantly harmed or traumatized or even left infertile by it. Once you get into the granular detail of the logic of commodifying, commodifying women's bodies, a great deal of which is downstream of the contraceptive revolution, you begin, you begin to see that it's a, it's a very ambiguous picture as to whether or not it really is in the, in women's interests in total. You know, if you want to define it narrowly as the greater emancipation of bourgeois white women with high social status, I would say, yes, absolutely. That group has been net beneficiaries of the, the industrialization of women's bodies. But I would, I would argue that there are a great many costs in, in the commodification of women's bodies outside that demographic. So that's a really interesting set of arguments. Let me try and puzzle through this argument from commodification. And I'm going to try and channel, and perhaps not a very convincing or appropriate spokesperson of it, I'm going to try and channel second wave feminism here to imagine what they might respond. I mean, the first thing to say, I suppose, would be that the second wave feminist reading of marriage in traditional societies, as I understand it, is that it was all about commodification, right? That marriage was a kind of property contract in which the husband acquired property over women. Even when you go back to something like John Stuart Mill, his objection to the laws extant in England at the time of him writing the subjection of women is that whether he wanted to or not, in fact, the man acquired a kind of form of property over woman in the act of marriage. And so at that point, women were effectively the property either of their fathers or their husbands throughout life, unless perhaps they became widows, at which point they had some form of agency under certain circumstances. So when we're thinking about whether that whole set of social changes you're talking about has commodified women, I guess the first thing I would say is, well, for the vast majority of them, it's given them more agency because they are now able to, to have a job and command a market wage and uh, the laws about marriage have changed. And as a result, they have a whole lot more agency. And then when it comes to the question of sex work, I guess I would just note that that seems like a choice we've made since the 1960s. It's not the case that the introduction of the baby pill has automatically led to the legalization of all of those forms of sexual sex work, as is evident from the fact that different societies, all of whom have a pill, and all of them have a pill available to women, have adopted very, very different laws about sex work and pornography, some extremely permissive, like in, in, in the United States, some a lot more restrictive. And so on that count, I take your argument that perhaps those very permissive laws may ultimately be bad or may at least come with very serious trade-offs that we should take more seriously than some feminists do. But it doesn't seem to me that that follows necessarily downstream from those changes. There are choices that different societies have made and different societies have chosen differently, even in the presence of something like the pill and other modern contraceptive technologies. So just to reiterate, the, the argument that I made in Feminism Against Progress is speaking about the Anglosphere. I'm comfortable with my analysis being applicable to the Anglosphere. And, you know, while, while you may be right that there are other cultural contexts which have responded differently, I've explicitly um, set those aside in making in making the analysis I have. Um, just on, on the point of marriage and commodification, yes and no. You're right that one of the, some, some strands of second wave feminism are sharply critical 
of of marriage and see it they they it's it's often it's often read through through the lens more or less so the the, the one that Engels sets out in I think it's the origins the origins of the family I think I think it's called is a nineteenth century book on where he views the women's subordination as as originating with agriculture and he calls it the world the world historical defeat of the female sex now I'm you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try and argue back against Engels but just to just to say. If you only go back to say the 18th or even the 17th century, you're possibly not going back. Well, it's only if you go back to the 18th century, which would have been what John Stuart Mill, the uh, the context that John Stuart Mill was writing in. Um, you know, he's he's responding to his his sort of immediate immediate cultural past and the and and women's predicament under those circumstances. And really, what he's responding to there is the 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 conditions of early industrialization, which which the women's movement also responded to. And he's right to make the critiques that he makes. Because under the conditions of the industri- early industrial era and the legacy social and cultural institution, the institutional environment in which the inherited from the pre-modern order within which mar- marriage was understood was no longer a good fit for the material conditions which were brought into being by industrialization. So just to unpack that a little bit, the fundamental change which industrialization brought to family life and really and the, the central one that the, the women's movement responded to was in, in draining work from the home. And what happened at that point, prior to the industrialization, prior to the, the the arrival really of modernity, and both sexes worked. Now, you know, and th- and this is not to say that it was all sunshine and roses. I'm sure I'm sure there were plenty of grim homesteads where nobody really liked one another, and work was work was dull and arduous and and grim. And but one one thing we we can say with with a great deal of confidence is that both sexes worked. A work was work was gendered. When men's work and women's work were were very were clearly distinctive. I mean, again in the book I've drawn from Ivan Illich. Who writes in a great deal of anthropological detail about the the the, the genderedness of men's work and women's work in, in agrarian societies? And, and under those circumstances, women the the kind of work that women did was generally conducted with children underfoot. And again, it made you know there were, there were I'm sure there were plenty of trade offs to that situation. I'm sure there were you know plenty of toddlers who died by falling into a fire because all of their parents were busy working or whatever. But this but this is how it was. And under those circumstances, women had a measure of economic agency on, under the under the terms um, that made sense at the time. But but the key thing to remember is that the, the principal economic unit in, in the medieval world was not the individual as it is under under modernity. It was the household. Under those under those circumstances, legal personhood was wasn't really separable in any meaningful sense because it just didn't make sense to it, it didn't make sense to think of people as, as individual economic producers or consumers in the way in the way we do today. I mean it's it's difficult to grok from from a modern perspective, but it was a fundamentally different thought world and a fundamentally different political system. And under those circumstances, I mean, most people didn't vote full stop. I, in fact, I don't know. yeah, hardly anybody had the vote full stop. But and then and what what then happened as as we as we arrive in Britain in the 18th century into the industrial era was that it was it was women's work that left the home first. Textile making, for example, and butter—you know—the processing of foodstuffs into into consumables for the family. You know, those, those sorts of those sorts of small-scale ingredient processing and productive work for for the household. It was no longer women's work within the home. Um, with children on the foot, as it had had been since time immemorial, it, it then it then became much more 
something which happened outside the home with with women as women as a, a, actually relative to their pre-modern pre-modern forebears significantly disempowered chief consumer in a private household and i mean you, you we can sort of slice this even more depending on where you are in the social scale but this this was a totally new situation for women to respond to and one of the big challenges that women faced under those circumstances was that where previously they'd been part, they'd been considered as part of the household as a productive unit suddenly they no longer had equal as a measure of economic clout but the legacy legal system that they'd inherited from the pre-modern world still considered the principal unit to be the household. And so they basically had no 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 leverage whatsoever. Uh, this is fine if your husband loves you and he's a good provider and he etc. And so you know if you if you're married if you're lucky and you've married a good guy, this is fine and you can probably make this work. And there's a whole raft of women's writing in the in the 19th century principally, which concerns the it makes a positive case for bourgeois domesticity under those terms, you know, on the assumption that what you have is a good husband and a good provider. There's also a huge efflorescence of reformist women's campaigning, um, which seeks to remedy drunkenness and domestic abuse, and, and tries to do something about all the men who are not good husbands. And then there's a whole other efflorescence of women's activism, which is which is concerned with remedying women's specific vulnerabilities under the legacy legal and cultural system. For example, in addressing coverture and calling for the vote. For example, in 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 seeking in seeking to give women the right to work, so that if they did find themselves in circumstances where they were left destitute or they had an uh, they had a neglectful or an abusive husband, you know, they they could earn a and, the, and, and where, so that women could own, pro own property in their own right, so that women had a claim to their children. So all of these things are really responses to a transformation in how in 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 in, in the world, which had been driven by very much larger socioeconomic changes, and which which it was right and proper for women to respond to on those terms. So, and, and but but just bringing it back to the question of marriage, um, if it's if you only look back to the 19th century and you and the predicament that women were under in the 18th and the 19th century with the beginning of industrialization, you're not looking back far enough. And I would I would question the automatic assumption that marriage under in the medieval world was so straightforwardly hierarchical. And proprietarian and patriarchal as all of that. I, 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 I would, I, I would just want, I would want to see considerably more detailed historical analysis before I made a claim like that confidently. And I think if, if we, if we're simply retro, you know, rever, reverse engineering everything in the context of the specific dilemmas of the 18th and 19th century and early industrialization, we're, we're, we're not doing our history thoroughly enough. If we're chronicling some of the trade-offs of the changes that have been brought about. For the last 50 or 60 years. One of the obvious ones seems to be the juggling between workplaces, child-rearing responsibilities, uh, and so on, right? So the positive cast in this is the, you know, you can have it all kind of attitude that women now are able to have very fulfilling careers and have children and loving families at the same time. The negative cast in it is that they're pulled into all these different directions, that it's impossible to do all at the same time, and that if they uh, fail to do one of those things, then they're seen as somehow incomplete because they choose not to be mothers or because they are housewives and don't participate in the workplace and so on. What is your view of this area of contemporary reality for women? I'd be hesitant to speak for any other woman or any other mother in any sort of generalizing way because people vary, women vary so much in in their priorities. I will say that the, that there was some interesting work done by a sociologist called Catherine Hakim on 
women's preferences, all other things being equal. It was done about 20 years ago. And she, she wanted to look at the question of, you know, if in an ideal world, what, what would your preference be for how you would want to balance work and home? You know, would you want to be at work full time? Would you want to be at home full time? Or would you want some kind of a mixture? And what she established is that on average, it breaks down about 60% of women want some, want, want some mixture of the two. And of, of the rest, roughly 20% want to be stay at home mums. And the other 20% want Want to, want to be professionally ambitious. And of the professionally ambitious subset, some, some proportion won't have children at all. But by far, the majority of women would prefer some, mix, some, some balance of work and home. And to be clear, balance in this context, well, does it mean both all out or it means, I guess, what, what does that mean? Tell me a little bit more about what balance means in the context of a study. Generally speaking, it means, part, it means working part-time and fairly flexibly. That's that. That's what. That's you know, the the majority of women would, with especially with young children, would prefer to work flexibly and ideally not full time. Right. So balance means in, in contradistinction to having it all. It does not mean I'm a full career woman and I have children. It means taking at least some step back in professional ambition while 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 raising young children. It is not possible to have it all. It just isn't. I mean, I can you know speaking from my own from my own personal experience. I mean, here here I am in the United States. It's obviously possible. You know, I only have one child, which makes a difference, and she's she's no longer tiny, which makes a difference. But there are points where the contest is zero sum. You know, there are opportunities I have to decline because because she she needs me more at home. And there are times when she misses me terribly. For the most part, I, I have pretty much the holy grail in terms of in terms of mothering setups, in that I can work from home pretty much according to my own schedule. And it, and if I need to take time off at short notice because my child needs me, I can. I mean, this is that's pretty much the optimum setup for somebody with children under ten. I would be willing to bet that the majority of women, the majority of mothers, if you offered them that setup, would bite your arm off. I mean, there are, but this is, this is obviously not something which is very easy to generalize about because not all careers are identical. I mean, obviously, if you're a, if you're an emergency room doctor, that's that. It's just not, it's not going to work like that. But then, but, but by the same token, it's not really a coincidence that, that, uh, women are, women are very well represented in general practice. Um, because that's, uh, that, that's the kind of, that's the, it, it, women doctors are well represented in med- medical practice because it's something you can do part time that has predictable hours. So it's just much easier, much more easy to be a mother than if you were, say, an emergency room doctor. So, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's very difficult to generalise about, but I would say on balance for women, a lot a lot of the time, I, I think there are there are situations where we, we arrive at motherhood not realising what it's going to be like, and I, you know, I, I hear this quite a lot. You arrive, you know, you don't really know how you're going to feel. Yeah, but I mean, having kids is like going through the looking glass. Um, you you come out somewhere with a whole a whole new a whole new repertoire of emotions that I mean certainly this was my experience and I and I hear it a lot from friends who have children that they you know came out the other side of parenthood with, with just an entirely new palette of emotions that they didn't even realize existed if, if you've already if, if you do that at the point where you're already fairly well established in a career which is quite difficult to combine with that new palette of emotions and inclinations and desires you know it's it's a challenge I mean what what do you do what do you do at that point and I, I think that there are uh, there's a non-trivial number of women who now find themselves in that position and feel very pulled into Different directions as a result. You know, when when younger women ask me, you know, do you have any advice for for, for being, you know, planning planning for a world a, a life where I, I can be a mum and also have a fulfilling career? And I, I say, you know, if you if you can optimize for a career that's fairly portable and that you can dial up or down at different points in your life depending on the duty of the moment. So you can you you know you can soft pedal it for a few years while your children are smaller and then you can dial it back up again. You know, there are there are a thousand and one different things that 
that, that, that you could potentially do, which, which would fit those criteria and some things which very obviously don't. Um, and so, so when, when younger women, when, when younger women ask my views on it, that's, that tends to be the suggestion that I make. But, but again, you know, it's, it's just, it, it's, it's incredibly risky to try and make statements that, that are going to be applicable to everybody because people's inclinations just vary. You know, and I, and I, I equally, I know mothers who, who are, who are perfectly happy to, to be working full time and more than full time, and and who and who also devoted and loving and marvelous parents and and make it work. So, what conclusion should we draw from the shortcomings of a feminist framework that you argue for, and the areas where the trade-off is particularly stark? If the sexual revolution has huge benefits that can lead to the commodification of women, if the fact that women can now have high-flying careers is an obvious positive, but it can lead to this intense conflict between a desire to be a caregiver to children and, and to persist in the career. Is this a call for simply an intellectual change in recognizing these trade-offs, or does something important follow from it for how we should think about the nature of sexual liberation in our society, the nature of female empowerment in the workplace, and so on? I guess there's a, there's a few different resolutions that we could look at that question on. You know, at the, at the very simplest level, it would be a good start simply to acknowledge that there are some trade-offs. That would be that would be a very a, a very positive place to start. You know, and, and instead of saying, in, instead of implicitly suggesting to women, which happens a lot, that if you if you step back a little bit from you know, sort of peak peak professionalism or whatever, that you're somehow a loser or letting the side down, and which, which I remember I felt distinctly when when I when I got to you know my daughter got to about one year old and my husband asked me if I wanted to go back to work, and. And I, and I realized that, I mean, I, I sucked at every career I ever attempted from graduating up to accidentally becoming a writer. I was, just, I was hopelessly unemployable by the time I had kids. And there was literally nothing that I want, I, I could imagine doing that I would want, that, that, that would, that would make, that motivated me enough to want to take me away from my baby at that point. Yeah, and, and I felt a bit ambivalent about saying that because I felt like I was letting the side down or, you know, somehow, somehow not being a good feminist or not being a, does that, um, and then I thought, well, but this doesn't make sense. And furthermore, um, um, I, I also realized that the, the very fact that I had a choice to not go back to work because we were financially in a position for me to to have that have that choice, you know, was not evidence of oppression, as I'd always somehow sort of just implicitly believed as part of the ambient messaging that you receive from the culture. But in fact, it was an incredible privilege and that there were, you know, there were a great many peers in my NCT group and whatever who were in a position where they had to go back to work and they didn't, they didn't particularly love their jobs, but it was it was either that or get the house repossessed. And that actually the, the question of freedom and choice and emp economic empowerment is a great deal and, in, and, and what, what, what we, what we may, may or may not have to sacrifice in terms of closeness to our children is a great deal more ambivalent than we might we might otherwise imagine. So I think if we were if we were will, able and willing just to just to acknowledge some of those trade-offs and and to be able to to talk openly about the fact that it's you know the being being the girl boss isn't always the be all and end all and actually actually it's okay to want to be a mum and actually it's okay to say no I'm not going to take on this extra project because my child needs me this weekend and it's okay to to set those boundaries and it's and 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 how dare you make me feel like a loser for 
for for having made those priorities and not these ones. And I feel I feel I feel very protective of the mothers who who do make those choices, and very very sort of defensive on on behalf of every single every single stay at home mum who's ever had somebody instantly lose interest in them at a party when 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 she says what she what she does all day. You know this happens a lot. Every stay at home mum can 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 knows what it feels like when somebody says so what do you do and you say oh I'm a mum and you can already see them looking over your shoulder to find somebody more interesting to talk to. It happens all the time, um, and I've. I feel I feel angry and protective on behalf of all of those all of those mothers because it's it's utterly priceless work and and it's somehow it's somehow treated as infra dig it's treated as something that we can outsource it's treated as something which can be done by subalterns and subordinates and third parties yeah often racialized minorities and we can underpay those people because they're really I mean who cares they're probably just a bit thick and useless anyway um, and and it's and it's not true because these are our children. And, and, and they, you know, I mean, what, is it, I struggle to think of anything that matters more. Um, and I think, you know, this sort of ambient assumption that literally anything you could imagine doing is of greater value than, than being with your children, just, just grossly offensive. So it would be a good start to be able to speak to that a little bit more. So if we had more time than we do, we could quibble about whether your objections are to liberalism or to a certain kind of left-wing milieu. I think liberalism, rightly understood, should allow people choices, including the choice of whether they want to prioritize a career or whether they want to prioritize child-rearing. But is this partially a Jeremiah against a certain cultural set, against a set of assumptions in upper middle class metropolitan elites who say your worth is defined by your job. So if you're saying you're a stay-at-home mom, then there can't possibly be anything interesting about you at party, that you need to be the girl boss and so on. It's not clear to me that describes society as a whole, but it certainly seems to describe a sort of progressive-ish urban upper middle class. And I guess if, if that's the critique, then do they need to become more open to certain ideas that might be coded as small c conservative? Do they need to recognize that allowing people with choices is in fact a progressive value? How, how should we rethink culturally and how can people speak to these concerns without coming off as, as reactionaries that just want to you know, lock the woman back in the kitchen or whatever the kind of immediate objection from some members of that social set might be? But I should add it this way: I don't, I don't see being a reactionary as, as something bad. But I, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a reactionary. But I, I, one of the one of the structural problems that we have here, I mean, yes, yes, absolutely, it's a critique of a certain social set. But the the the, the central problem, the structural problem, is that this is the set that has that has the mic. Almost absolutely overwhelmingly. I mean, just to illustrate, I was I was reading a great anthology of uh, fe radical feminist writing from the 1990s, and in one of the, in one of the pieces, it recounts how this radical this feminist group held a vote at their women's centre as about whether or not uh, whether or not they were going to open a crash, and they voted against it. And the reason they voted against it was because all of the women who would have voted for it weren't able to turn up for the vote because they were looking after their kids. So there's a structural problem, or there has always been a structural problem with the representation of mothers in public political life, because we're busy and we just, we can't show up to all of the late night hustings or whatever. And as a consequence of that, what very, what incredibly commonly happens is that the women who do end up representing, as it were, the interests of all women in public life are the ones who didn't prioritize their families, because just obviously that's, that's who has the time to show up. And then in very, and then what happens downstream of that is that 
that there's there's in, there's very little consideration given to the interests of those women who might have made different choices. So again and again, when you see when you see um, women speaking in public about you know a feminist program for, for a feminist political program for for when, when they're standing for election, what they'll generally be offering is more childcare. And what they what they what they're very much less likely to be offering, for example, might be a transferable tax allowances or um, a, a childcare allowance which you could pay to extended family or or form cooperatives with, or you know any one of a thousand and one different ways that you might that you might think more creatively about about balancing work and family in order to meet the needs of the sixty percent. Invariably, what what ends up happening is that what's framed as feminist within that context is the interests of the of the ver- of the highly ambitious twenty percent. And the other, well, pretty much 80% of women um, go, go voiceless. One other thing which I think affords some hope is actually, all for all that I'm very critical of the digital revolution in some respects, I think the internet, really the smartphone, um, has given mothers a voice in, in the feminist conversation again in a totally unprecedented way. In the sense that, I mean, you can, you can scroll and you can tweet and you can participate in the discourse. You can participate in, to a significant extent in public life from your smartphone now in a way, in a way which gives mothers a voice in the conversation. And I think that's having a lot of really interesting downstream effects in the. You don't have to go to the association meeting at 6 p.m. on a Tuesday when you actually want to be home with your child. They'd had that women's centre vote about the creche and, and, and those mums who were pushing the buggy around town to get their kid to sleep were able to vote remotely. Perhaps perhaps the vote would have gone differently. And and this, at scale, this is this is having some very interesting effects on, on the women's movement as a whole, which, as, as you may or may not have noticed, is, is quite turbulent at the moment with, with different groups of women, um, you know, quite, quite intensely at odds about what does constitute women's interests. And I think one of the reasons that, that women are so... Well, once again, sort of grappling with these questions is that voices have come into the conversation which had previously just been structurally excluded, um, and particularly those the, the voices of mothers. And to me, that's a that's a real that's a real well. <laughs> we could say I, I I would call that progress, you know, on on the terms on the terms which make sense to me. You're skeptical about the extent of progress that we are able to make. What do you mean by that? To be clear, I'm not I'm not an anti-feminist. Um, I consider myself a feminist. You know, I care about women's interests and I think those are often marginalized in relation to those of men. But I am, I have questions about the, the liberal feminism, which has become dominant, particularly in the last 50 years, which foregrounds sameness. Um, foregrounds an aspiration to e- strict equality between the sexes and individual freedom over and above our relationships to one another. I would, and, and though all of those things are underwritten by a commitment to um, medical means of managing a, the, the irreducible embodied asymmetries between the sexes. So as a liberal... So I have, so I have some questions about that, but the liberal feminism defined in those terms, more or less. Um, and when I say I'm, I, I'm critical of progress, or I'm, I question how much progress we're able to make, um, it's, more, it's more concrete, it's more fundamental than that. I don't believe progress is a thing. I think it's, you know, the moment, the moment you set out to, to explain what you mean by progress, you have to define your terms. You know, we're progressing from, from worse to better on what metric. And the moment you see, the moment you've defined your metrics, you've assumed the truth of what you've set out to prove, which is to say you've begged the question. So I don't, I don't see how in any sort of absolute sense it's, it's provable or disprovable or falsifiable really to 
to, to claim that well, the world is getting better or the, to, the total sum of human felicity or virtue or whatever is getting, be is, is, is getting better in some absolute sense relative to, say, a thousand years ago. I just don't see how you can prove that or disprove it. So I just don't believe, I, so to me, I, I see progress in, in, as a sort of, the, as a governing theology, if you like, for how we understand what's going on and what we should be trying to do. I see it as a belief rather than a fact. And it's not, it's, it's not the framework that I, I choose to use. And really, I set out to write Feminism Against Progress as a way of trying to answer a question which had really bugged me for a long time since I realized I didn't believe in progress or I lost my faith in progress theology, which is, can, is it possible to be a feminist if you don't believe in progress? Because it's a really, it was a really difficult question to answer because the, the story of, you know, progress as we understand it in the modern world and the history of feminism are very closely intertwined. And some of the most convincing, um, pushback I might, I might get on saying, well, I don't believe in progress would be people saying to me, aha, yeah, but you, do you really want to go back to a world where women don't have the vote? Do you want to be the property of your husband? You know, ah, but yeah, we have made progress. There you are, you see. And, and I was thinking, well, hang on a minute. Is this, is this actually true? And, you know, if so, do I have to either abandon my feminism? Or, or, or try and try and persuade myself again of this this progress theology, which I don't really believe in. And my and the the way I've the way I've ended up disaggregating the story of feminism and the story of progress is to rethink how we understand feminism, not as a story of moral improvement, of sort of directional moral ascent, if you like, from from worse to better, um, in any sort of absolute sense, but as a as an aggregate set of responses to the transformations brought about in the modern world through first through industrialization and subsequently through another tech transition, which is to say um, birth control. And so, and so, that, so that's my framework for thinking about what feminism is: the aggregate women's aggregate responses to ab absolutely world-changing tech transitions. And I think when we when we think about it in those terms, it's possible to take it out out of the out of the more moralistic framework, if you like, of of more good or less good, um, or and some sort of directional arc of arc of the moral universe, which is supposedly long but bending toward justice. And see it in a more grounded and contextual and anti-universalist way as a, a set of things which perhaps have some benefits, but, but which may also have come with some trade-offs and where we can think critically and much more concretely about what those benefits and trade-offs are, who, who, who gains, who loses, and, and perhaps where, where we might need to rebalance how we're thinking about it in order to, in order to make space for some of those voices which have been marginalized. Mary Harrington, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.